This is hell. Among the reasons that promise does go unfulfilled is because of the Supreme Court, which we were all likely taught was a pillar of democracy, but historic evidence reveals it is far less than democratic. The court determines the law, but is that law just when it comes to fairly treating all people equally in the United States, which is supposed to be a bedrock of society or based on the nation's founding documents, at least I thought it was, here to help us all have a better understanding of what the court is and what the court is not. Historian, writer, and editor Steve Frazier returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new Tom Dispatch article, The Trump Supreme Court is Nothing New, A History of the Tyranny of the Supremes. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I was eavesdropping on your show. You just you just survived a a year a year from hell. I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic. Well, you just take a year off. Yeah, thank you very much. I would like to, and that's why I, my whole uh, stock portfolio right now is full of lottery tickets, Steve. So that's, <laughs> that's my whole plan. It's my business model right now. So, so you write: uh, Has the Supreme, uh, has the Trump Supreme Court gone rogue? The evidence mounts a woman's right to get an abortion gone. Uh, meanwhile, voting rights are barely hanging on, along with the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act that gave them life. State legislatures, so the court ruled, may no longer rein in wanton availability of firearms, and so the bloodshed will inevitably follow. Climate catastrophe will not get closer as the Supremes have moved to disarm the EPA's efforts to reduce carbon emissions. Religion, excluded from the public arena since the nation's founding, can now invade the classroom thanks to the court's latest pronouncement. This renegade court is anything but finished doing its mischief. Affirmative active, uh, action may be next on the chopping block. Gerrymandering long and ignoble tradition in American political life could become unconstrained if the Supreme Court and the Supremes decide to exempt such practices from state court judicial review. And who knows what they're likely to rule when every election not won by the Republican Party may be liable to a lawsuit. So for many, these are all very frightening rulings. Uh, to what extent does the Supreme Court have the power to dictate, if you will, which party is in power or who the voters elect as president? How much can rulings by the Supreme Court, in your opinion, be a threat to the democracy I thought it was supposed to uphold with law? Well, as the, as the, the cases and, and, and decisions you just recited make clear, Clearly, the court has enormous power to undermine democracy. It has done so over the last uh, few months, uh, but it's it's always done that to one degree or another, with some exceptions since the founding of the court, which uh, coincides, of course, with the founding of the country uh, and uh, was made uh, possible by the Constitution back in 1787. The court was implicitly given the rule to restrain the democratic rights uh, of people. Uh, and in fact, the Constitutional Convention itself in Philadelphia in 1787 was convened because colonial elites or uh, post-revolutionary elites were terribly concerned with what they called at the time, uh, Madison, for example, called at the time passionate majorities or factitious majorities. Or, or what some people called at the time Republic, the, the Republican frenzy, and by which they meant that in the period of time running from the end of the revolution to the convening of that meeting in Philadelphia in 1787, the country was afire with social rebellion of all kinds. 
ordinary people, particularly farmers and others, who were plagued by excessive taxation, were deeply in debt, were subject to land speculators, land monopolists, uh, currency speculators, um, rose up in rebellion in various uh, what would be states around the country. The most famous rebellion is, of course, Shays' Rebellion, which uh, occurred among uh, farmers in Western Massachusetts just before the Constitutional Convention met, in which uh, people would not only, uh, they would, for instance, release people from debtors' prisons. They would, if they occupied, I don't, I mean, I shouldn't say occupied, when they won majorities in state legislatures, they would cancel debts or declare debt moratoria. They would issue paper currency so that it would be easier for debtors to discharge their debts. Uh, they passed a whole series of laws which showed limited or no respect for private property and, and for the powerful interests like merchants and bankers and landlords and speculators whose uh, private property they were endangering. And so the convention was called in part to address that excessive, that democratic excess. And um, that's why uh, the meeting in Philadelphia was held in secret. It was a broiling hot uh, period of time in July. Every window and door at Independence Hall was closed. They didn't want anything leaking out about what they were deliberating. Uh, in fact, they were not even sent there, the delegates, to write a new constitution. They were sent there to amend the Articles of Confederation. Uh, and of course, it, it was such a contentious document that it almost didn't pass muster, both among the delegates and then in the various states. Uh, there were there were mass movements designed to stop it. Uh, and uh, uh, so and the court, was conceived as one of the bulwarks against this excessive democracy. Uh, that's why, for example, the, the Constitution prescribes lifetime terms uh, for the justice of the Supreme Court. It's why what Ben Franklin called the soul of the Constitution, inscribed in Section 10 of Article 1, says that there cannot be any impairment of private contracts. It, can, it, it gives the power to the federal government to put down insurrections that's in the, in the Constitution. And in fact, shortly after the uh, Constitution was adopted in the early 1790s, there was something called the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania, where Pennsylvania farmers uh, rose up in rebellion against the whiskey tax. Uh, George Washington sent troops commanded by Alexander Hamilton to put down that rising and that power to do so was inscribed in the constitution they had adopted. Uh, it's, it's why we had for almost a century, more than a century, the indirect election of senators who were elected not by the people in states, but by their state legislatures. It's why we have the electoral college. There were various ways of shielding property from the influence from the power of democratic movements, which had taken over many state legislatures. There were rebellions in Virginia, in Connecticut, in, in, uh, in Ethan Allen boys in, in Vermont. Um, and so the constitution and the court were conceived as a kind of prophylactic against this uh, excess democracy. So did the court then end the revolution, not enforce the victories of the revolution? And if so, how do we view 
uh, or how should we view the Supreme Court differently today when we understand it as something that ended a revolution, not necessarily enforcing the victories of that revolution? Well, I think the first thing to note is that, of course, the opposition was so intense that we do have the Bill of Rights. They were not part of the original Constitution, but the, the, the opposition to an overpowering government was so strong throughout the ex-colonies that the, the Bill of Rights establishing all the, the amendments to the Constitution that we, are, we know of, the right of free speech and so on, had to be amended to get it passed. Um, so yes, uh, the, the revolution, the post-revolutionary era did preserve some of the basic civil liberties and civil rights. Of course, it said nothing about slavery. It stayed clear of touching slavery. The revolution is a misnomer in a way because it was not a social revolution. It did not disturb the distribution of property. It did not threaten slave labor. Very, very carefully did not do that. But it did inscribe civil liberties and civil rights, which became something that movements, democratic movements, could make use of in their struggle against uh, powerful uh, interests uh, in the country. You also write that Donald Trump's three appointments to the court, Neil Gorsuch, Brett, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, cemented in place a rightward shift in its center of gravity that had begun decades earlier. And I think that's always important to stress, decades earlier. Ever since in 1986, President Ronald Reagan appointed William Rehnquist, a staunch conservative, as chief justice, the court has only become ever more averse to regulating business, even as it worked to reduce the power of the federal government. How much do you think that is an accurate reflection of public sentiment? Did the court rule this way because that was the way society was moving? No, it probably ruled that way because society was moving in the other direction. Um, that's, 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 the, that's the mechanism. That's the syndrome. You have movements afoot in, in the country, in American society, that want to rein in the power of powerful interests, uh, especially corporate interests. And the court has functioned often, not always, to, to check that kind of democratic impulse. Do you know between 1970 and 2000, around 2000, the number of, uh, of, of, of pro-business decisions by the Supreme Court tripled? Um, this is one of the in indices of a court which, uh, you know, coming out of the 60s, there was a lot of anti-corporate feeling in the country. And we do get some of the most important regulatory legislation uh, 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 the, the EPA is born then, OSHA is born then, and so on. And so the court functions, especially with Rehnquist becoming chief justice in 86, um, more and more to unravel those kinds of regulatory uh, uh, difficulties that the business community uh, was facing, to more and more uh, release the power of big business. The most striking uh, decision it's made in its more recent history, of course, is Citizens United which essentially treats the corporation as a person, and that person has the right to contribute to uh, political campaigns. And it's, it's, it's enhanced the enormous overpowering influence of big money to determine what happens politically in the country. That same court, uh, early, while Rehnquist was actually still chief justice, made George W. Bush the president of the United States rather than Al Gore in stopping the recount of the Florida vote, which we don't, we'll never know what seemed likely to favor Gore's election as president. So the, the court has again and again uh, uh, functioned as it was designed to. You know, uh, 
Tocqueville, uh, the great uh, French writer about American democracy in the early 19th century, described uh, the judiciary as America's high political class. And um, he, he, he was right about that. The court has functioned that way uh, again and again, and most notoriously during the long period running from right after the Civil War, right up to the Great Depression of the 1930s is its most uh, uh, reactionary period of a ruling on behalf of capital and against labor, against farmers, against black people. And I can go into that if you'd like. Yeah, and we will in just a moment. You write that this march to the right was in stark contrast to the earlier deliberations of the court led by Chief Justice Earl Warren. The Warren Court was, of course, best known for its landmark 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education decision striking down public school segregation. It would also become the judicial centerpiece of a post-World War II liberal order that favored labor unions, civil rights, government oversight of business, and the welfare state. Historically speaking, however, the Warren Court was the exception, not the one cobbled together by Donald Trump and effectively, if not officially, presided over by Justice Clarence Thomas. The Supremes were born to be bad. If the current conservative court is the norm, how much of a role has the court played in advancing conservatism in the United States? Is the court uh, generally conservative because the United States is, or again, is the U.S. conservative because the court is? Uh, that, that's, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I should mention uh, that, of course, the court has taken the lead in defending the most reactionary interests uh, in the country. Uh, the most infamous decision the court ever made uh, is the Dred Scott decision uh, in, in, in 1857, uh, which uh, essentially said no black person, free or slave, could be a citizen of the United States, uh, that Slavery was legitimate everywhere in the Union, in every territory over which the federal government had uh, had a power, uh, and that if a slave made it into a free state, it didn't matter that he remained the property of his owner. And this 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 incredibly uh, decision was in defense of the of the of the plantation, obviously elite, and became one of the most important moments in the lead up, the immediate lead up to the Civil War. It enraged abolitionists around the country. Lincoln talks about it in his 1861 inaugural address. Um, and it, uh, because it, undo, it undid the only compromise which had kept the Union together for decades. That is the Missouri Compromise, which said, okay, you can have slavery south of this particular latitude. You can't have slavery north of it. And the court said, no, this Dred Scott decision. Uh, the chief justice, by the way, was a Southern aristocrat, aristocrat named John Taney, uh, Roger Taney, uh, said, no, there is no more Missouri Compromise. Slavery is legitimate everywhere in the country. So the court has again and again played an activist role in defending uh, in in defending conservative uh, uh, conservative interests and, and and well I'll stop there I don't know where you want to go with this 
That's what I was going to actually ask you about the activist court in general, because uh, the Heritage Foundation, and yes, I think this is the first time in 26 years of being on air that I've actually cited the Heritage Foundation, uh, they define uh, judicial activism or an activist court as judicial activism occurs when judges decide cases based on their personal preferences and in spite of the text of the Constitution, statutes, and applicable precedent. Judges are not charged with deciding whether a law leads to good or bad results, but with whether it violates the Constitution. So again, in a case like Dred Scott, uh, can we blame the court for the ruling or should we blame the law? Did the already written law lead to the justices ruling all black, black people or not uh, uh, citizens of the United States? It, it, because, you know, the way that you're depicting it, it sounds like the, an activist court, which is something that all conservatives are supposedly against, is the norm. It's not an anomaly. Well, you know, I think what we have to blame in the end is the distribution of power and wealth uh, in the country, because uh, in the end, the court is there to defend that existing distribution of power and wealth. Um, and I think that's uh, proven true again and again and again in the court's uh, history. It's not so much, in other words, it's the underlying structure of power and wealth, not so much the even the personal dispositions of the justices, although Taney was a Southern aristocrat. And in the Gilded Age, the court was filled with guys who had been ex-railroad and steel and iron company lawyers. But even if they hadn't been, their, their, their proclivity is to defend the status quo, the existing order. Uh, and, and, and so for example, you talk about what's in the Constitution and how to, what, are they enforcing it or not? It's how they read it. And, and how they read it is informed by the powerful interests in the country. Give, I'll give you a classic example of that. In, after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment was passed, which guaranteed to ex-slaves uh, the full civil liberties due to any American citizen. Uh, uh, subject to due process, et cetera, and so forth. It was designed to enhance the free status of emancipated slaves and to ensure that their, their freedom would not be uh, impinged upon by still very powerful Southern interests. Okay, that's the 14th Amendment. Uh, and the 15th Amendment, of course, ensured uh, the right to vote to ex-slaves, to uh, uh, African-Americans. Okay, now, um, it, that's passed right after the Civil War. About 20 years later, the court is making rulings about whether or not a businesses can be regulated by governments. Many state le legislatures around the country had passed regulatory laws uh, determining what uh, a railroad could charge farmers for hauling his goods, what a grain elevator operator could charge for storing the grain, or whether, whether monopolies could charge monopolistic prices. These, these laws were passed by state legislatures subject to the democratic will of their populations. There were laws passed uh, that uh, coal and other kinds of companies could not force their, could not pay their workers in script, which means company money, which then those workers had to use, could only could use at company stores to buy outrageously priced necessities, okay? The court is faced with these laws passed by state legislatures. They're faced with laws uh, and, and that regulate, um, well, that try to protect uh, the well-being of working people. So for example, there, there, there are laws passed to regulate uh, the number of hours workers can work. 
the number, the wa minimum wages, whether chi children can work, whether women can work, and so on. These laws are passed all over the country by state legislatures. The court rules, I'm getting to my point, I'm sorry to have gone on like this. The court rules, no, you can't do any of this. All of these laws are unconstitutional because they violate, and this is the irony, the 14th Amendment, the same amendment that was used to guarantee ex-slaves their civil liberties in the country. So there's the 14th Amendment. Its language is its language. It's not a question of whether it's in the Constitution or not in the Constitution. It's how you read it. And they read it like that. And I'll give you another example of that if you, if you, if you like. Uh, there's there's, a, there's a, a law passed in 1890. Uh, it's still a law in the books called the Sherman Antitrust Act. The Sherman Antitrust Act was passed uh, again, because there was overwhelming movements against the power of monopoly businesses in the country. This is the era of the great trusts, uh, you know, the Rockefellers and so on. Um, and these laws are passed. This law is passed to break up trust when they're in, uh, uh, when they uh, are deemed to be in restraint of trade. Okay. That law, the Sherman Antitrust Act, is almost never, it is used sometimes against some corporations like U.S. Steel and so on. It is mainly overwhelmingly used against labor unions. And the labor unions who strike, say the union calls a strike or a boycott, a secondary boycott, because in the late 19th century, there was enormous sympathy for the well-being of workers and workers on strike who were being treated so badly. The court rules that these strikes are illegal and, and issues injunctions to stop them and sends federal troops to break them up and kills people in doing so because those strikes they rule are in violation of the Sherman Antitrust Act. That is to say, they, they are in restraint of trade. They are conspiracies, the court rules, in restraint of trade. So the law is there. You can read it any way you want to read it. The, the law clearly was not designed to break up unions and stop strikes, but the court, what's called the Lochner Court, and I'll tell you why in a second, rules that that is really the import of the law to stop uh, unions uh, 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 from existing or conducting strikes. Okay, go, you uh, just continue on. So uh, why is it called the Lochner Court? I want to make sure that people understand oh, yeah, this point as well. Well, one of the laws that's passed, it's passed in New York State, tries to uh, establish, get this, maximum hours for bakers. Uh, bakers were working in tenement uh, workshops, terribly ill-ventilated, they're breathing in the flour, they're getting sick, uh, they're getting lung diseases. They work 75 to 100 hours a week. The law in New York State says you can't work, that we, the maximum has got to be 60 hours a week, right? 60. <laughs> to us, it sounds, how could they possibly even conceive of working that long? The court, the, uh, the, the, the baker uh, who sues New York State uh, 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 under this law is a man named Lochner. He has a bakery up in Utica, New York. Anyway, uh, the court rules that that law establishing maximum hours for bakers is unconstitutional because it interferes with, get this, this is also under the 14th Amendment, the freedom of contract. What the court is saying is this, however outlandish this may seem, that the employer, capital on the one hand, and labor on the other hand, are equal contractual partners. That is to say, they have equal rights, equal power. They can en enter into any bargain they want. The bakers agreed to work, whatever it was, 75 hours a week. So it was their choice. 
to do so, and therefore uh, the state should not interfere with that freedom of contract that the bakers. Now, you know, mo many people in the country said knew. I mean, they're 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 looking at a country in which people is abject poverty. Uh, there's an enormous, obvious exploitation going on, endless hours, uh, very low wages, the indignity of being uh, at the beck and call of your employer. Everybody knows that there's no equality between the employer on the one hand and the laborer on the other hand, but the court says, yes, there is. It's and uses the 14th Amendment, uh, which guarantees freedom of contract and the constitution, which guarantees it, um, to say, well, no, you know, you can't have a law like that because it interferes. And they use that rationale again and again to outlaw even child labor laws. Uh, the only time they allow child labor laws to, uh, be, to sustain them was in situations in which they said both women who also were uh, uh, sometimes protected by maximum hour laws, that they were inferior and therefore not able to exercise their contractual equality, right? Because they're inferior beings. So yes, the, the state has a right to interfere in that situation and protect them. Otherwise, uh, you, 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 it, it, here's another example. It, you know, there were yellow dog contracts all throughout the 19th. You know, there's a period of enormous organizing, mobilizing. You have the populist movement, you have the Knights of Labor, you have all this tumult going on, just like in the revolutionary period in a way. And the court steps forward to, to deal with this. So uh, uh, employers, one way they respond to this unionizing and organizing effort is to compel employees. You want a job? You have to sign what's called the yellow dog contract. A yellow dog contract is a promise on your part that you will never join a trade union. Well, there was a law, I forget now which state it was passed in, outlawing yellow dog contracts. The court said, no, that law is unconstitutional because it interferes with this freedom of contract. So uh, so the, the big answer, the, the underlying answer to your question is it doesn't matter in a way what the, what the words of the law say. It does matter. Of course it matters. But if the, the court in its, can use its prerogative to interpret that language as it chooses, and most of the time it chooses to interpret that language in ways that defend the interests of the powerful. So to what degree, then, is it a mistake for those on the left to call for a return of the Sherman Act and the Antitrust Act to solve all of our problems when it comes to uh, corporate power, when it comes to anti-union policies? Uh, how much of a mistake is it for us to look towards the Sherman Act as a savior for uh, the problems that we're having with corporate power and the lack of union organizing? Well, you know, it's all a question of what muscle you can bring to bear. I don't think it's a mistake to say the Sherman Antitrust Act is supposed to ban, uh, uh, you know, trust and restraint of trade and, and give people an opportunity to have their own. I, I think it's a great idea. The question is, do you have the mobilized social power among working people, middle class people to, to, to create enough teeth behind that law that the court is compelled? So, for example, the Warren Court. The Warren Court does what we know it did, which was great um, uh, in helping to dismantle segregation, especially it did other things as well that were good. Why? Well, there was enough power that had been mobilized in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Um, both the labor movement, movements among the unemployed, uh, farmer movements to stop mass evictions during the depths of the Depression. Um, and then after the 30s, in the, during the war and after the war, 
the growth of, a, of an increasingly powerful civil rights movement, that the Warren Court becomes the functionary of a new dispensation of power. I don't mean to say that suddenly big capital wasn't in charge, but there was a much there was a much more robust voice in public affairs held by particularly a very powerful labor movement, which had a kind of social conscience, wasn't simply trying to protect its own immediate interest by a civil rights movement. And then later uh, in the court's life, uh, a, a, a women's liberation movement. So it's a question of not the law itself. The que one question it is for the left is what do you do about this court? Uh, you know, uh, during this period of the Lochner court, there was enormous resistance to the court. Um, and various proposals were made by everybody from Teddy Roosevelt to Eugene Debs uh, to, to reform it, to do away with it, to end lifetime terms, uh, to make judges electable, to uh, uh, make it, if you wanted to invalidate a law, you had to, uh, it had to be a seven to two supermajority to do that. Uh, proposals that the Congress, a majority of the Congress be given the power to recall a judge, a Supreme Court judge, who had violated whatever they thought his constitutional duty was. So there were all kinds of, of reforms afoot uh, called for. Now, they didn't work. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and the Lochner court continued to do mischief right up until the early New Deal. It actually outlawed some of the key pieces of recovery legislation that the Roosevelt administration passed in the early 30s, the most important being the economic, uh, the national uh, Recovery Act, which was Roosevelt's principal piece of legislation to get the, con the economy moving, and they declared it unconstitutional. But by the mid-30s, the, the, the social movement, the political movements in the country were so powerful uh, that, um, uh, and Roosevelt's landslide election in, in 19, re-election in 1936, made the court less and more and more leery of bucking things, and then some of the justices were finally aging out. Roosevelt still faced a dilemma. He tried to pack the court which people are proposing now today that one proposal be that, uh, it, well, Roosevelt's proposal was that for every justice reaching the age of 70 who would serve for at least 10 years, an additional justice should be uh, appointed up to a number, I think a maximum of six justices. And people even talk about that kind of thing today. I think what we need to do, you know, there's a kind of air, an aura of sanctity, uh, of, of sacredness that surrounds the court. And we got to get over that. Uh, uh, they're just, you know, a now now women. There used to be just a bunch of guys with, you know, powerful ties uh, who, you know, uh, knew the law. Uh, but uh, there was nothing there was nothing sacred about this institution ever from from when it began. Uh, you know, uh, you know when it began. You know, Madison actually wanted there to be give the court the power uh, to veto legislation before it could pass. Uh, he, that proposal never went. But anyway, what I'm saying is uh, we, we've got to desanctify uh, the court and eliminate, dilute some of its power, make it more subject to uh, the democratic will. Now, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's an argument, uh, which it's called the counter-majoritarian argument. And it has a certain uh, traction. Why? Look, when the Warren Court again uses the 14th Amendment and other laws to begin to dismantle segregation, this is a violation of the civil liberties of citizens of the United States. What it's also doing 
is undoing the tyranny of white local democratic majorities in the South. In other words, that's why that's called the counter majority. There's no question that local majorities can do great damage, as this, this segregation is a is a is a majoritarian view uh, in places throughout the South for you know half a century or more than half a century. So the court there needs to be some proviso for for that kind of thing. But in the end, uh, we have to treat the court like any other institution made up of normal human beings whose powers need to be um, uh, 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 constrained. We are speaking with historian, writer, and editor Steve Frazier, who returns to This Is Hell to discuss his new Tom Dispatch piece. The Trump Supreme Court is nothing new, a history of the tyranny of the Supremes. You were mentioning about the uh, Supreme Court being as kind of a bulwark against populism. Does it matter the kind of populism that is being forwarded? Does the court rule against what might be considered left-wing populism as much as it protects against what is understood as right-wing populism? And is that what the United States wants to make certain that it, uh, it is not uh, being judged or ruled by some sort of extreme nature of left or right wing politics. Well, I think it's 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 proclivity is to rule and has been since its birth to rule against a left wing uh, populism. Uh, it's it's abortion decision and so on is is you might be interpreted as a as a empowering of right wing populism. Um, uh, obviously, uh, <laughs> the right wing may regret regret that victory uh, in the elections that are coming up. Nonetheless, uh, the court in doing that, uh, the court in whittling away at uh, voting rights is also uh, listening to a kind of right wing populist uh, movement of resentment of white nationalism and and so on, which is a real dangerous, scary reality in America today. There's no question about that. And to this, the court is very friendly. Um, it has never been friendly to left-wing populism or to socialism or to the labor movement. You know, part of the record of this, what is the rank was the Rehnquist court and now is this ongoing conservative court has been undoing labor legislation. You know, the Warren court was friendly to it. Uh, the Roosevelt administration was compelled by the labor movement to pass labor laws of various kinds. But many, much of that labor protective legislation uh, uh, has been undone during the this long era of a, of a conservative court, which long predated Trump's court, um, in whittling away the rights uh, to organize uh, and so on. So when it comes to left-wing populism or labor movement politics or socialist politics, uh, the court is decidedly unfriendly. You write that beyond those circles, however, segregation had become increasingly repellent in a culture ever more infused with the multi-ethnic sympathies and cosmopolitanism of the New Deal era. Cosmopolitanism is the belief that all people are entitled to equal respect and consideration no matter what their citizenship status or other affiliations happens to be. So is the court, historically in its rulings, is the court anti-cosmopolitanism? Is that another thing that it's constantly focused on, just like it's anti-working class, just like it seems yes, to be enforcing I, I think, of a yeah, patriarchy? I think, I think that's right. I think that's uh, well put. I mean, it wasn't during the Warren years, but otherwise generally has been. You know, uh, the antipathy uh, of elites 
for the lower orders often takes on a kind of racial or ethnic uh, kind of character. You know, when uh, the court ruled uh, uh, in, uh, I don't know if your listeners know, uh, the, mo the most famous decision of the 19th century court was Plessy versus Ferguson, which essentially said segregation is legitimate. And one of the judges on that court, this was the Lochner court, um, that ruling in this case on a racial matter, said, you know, uh, uh, white supremacy, and this is a quote, is, quote, in the nature of things. Um, and, and, and so uh, uh, there's, there's always been a kind of, and, you know, and, and the court has often re re referred, for instance, uh, in one of the decisions in the 19th century, during the Gilded Age of the 19th century, labor leaders were referred to by the court as ignoramuses. Um, uh, in other words, there's a kind of, there's a kind of contempt and arrogance, a kind of sense of superiority, inferiority that lurks behind the attitude. You know, the lower orders, which our uh, founding fathers often referred to, are often racialized. And I don't mean the way we normally assume all of that too, but that is their, their wrong skin color. It's that their very existence as uh, of doing the work of society, right? Uh, is, is, it denigrates them, devalues them, makes them less than, uh, you know, they're the awful of society. Immigrant workers, for example, were treated that way uh, for decades. And one of the hallmarks of the cosmopolitanism of the New Deal is the kind of elevation, so to speak, of this immigrant working class, which had fought for itself and found, founded these unions and, 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 and paid the price, but it, it elevated their stature uh, in, in, in the country. Uh, and the court is compelled, the Warren court, compelled to, to acknowledge that in, in, in the way it rules. In the way that you describe the court, that it often rules uh, against equality. Uh, how difficult is it to address inequality? Something many politicians, including President Barack Obama, made a big deal about towards the end of his second term in office. Uh, so how difficult is it to address inequality when the court seems to rule in support of inequality? Is the United States an unequal nation, again, because of the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, the court plays its role. I think in the end, what I would argue is, uh, although there are many, the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, there are laws on the books establishing the formal equality of people. And there are, and, and, and through constitutional amendment, for example, uh, women's right to vote and so on, that formal equality has been extended to wider and wider sections of the population, sometimes uh, at uh, the, with the resistance of the court. But what I would say about your question is this, that in the end, the question is not about enforcing existing laws, although that's important. It's about capitalism, that capitalism breeds inequality in its nature. You have a small coterie of people who own the means that everybody else in our society depends on to live. That endows them with enormous power. Unless you address that, inequality will remain uh, deeply embedded in our society, no matter how vigorously you enforce the formal equality that's been inscribed in our laws for 200 years. So this whole idea of putting profits before people, some people might think that this is new yeah. with neoliberalism. Is this not anything new with neoliberalism? Has the Supreme well, Court been enforcing neoliberalism since before there was neo neoliberalism? <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, those laws that were passed by state legislatures in the 19th century trying to regulate business or protect labor and so on, those were laws that said, wait a second here, property is not all there is. We are a, we are a democratic movement, movements trying to restrain, constrain, uh, domesticate, civilize property and its power. Uh, and 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 that's that's what they were really uh, trying to do, and that's what the court was uh, hell bent on preventing. Uh, and um, so yeah, uh, that that's uh, that's that's what the struggle uh, is all about. You know um, that 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 uh, uh, property, as the Constitution wanted to protect it, cannot be unrestrained uh, and uh, and uh, given free reign. You also write that justice is supposed to be non-political, but that has never been the case. In your opinion, is that possible? Is that something that we want to have a non-political justice? Well, we want that, but it's not realistic. These, the Warren court was political, uh, just as much as the Lochner court was political, or Trump's court is obviously political. Uh, what you want is a kind of fair-mindedness, uh, which uh, this court, this, this rogue Trump court, and has lost entirely. Where where really um, uh, it, 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 they are just a, a political agents of of a, of a movement. You want to have a sense of greater fair mindedness and a greater sense of accountability, which is why I think uh, uh, desanctifying and restraining the court, limiting its powers, uh, restoring powers to uh, democratic majorities, is is important. Uh, in, in, uh, in, in, in trying to accomplish that. If in the United States, then, law and order are, you know, the way that you describe it, disconnected from justice and democracy, then what form of democracy does exist within the United States today? How would you define today's day? Well, it's more and more limited. Obviously, the money, money, and this has been true for a long, long time, money speaks a lot louder than, uh, than people and determining what the laws shall be, how they shall, how they shall be enforced, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, uh, all, 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 the, all we can do is to organize and mobilize. And sometimes the court overreaches itself. So, for example, I think the, the, um, the, uh, uh, the Roe, ver, uh, Roe uh, versus Wade, uh, uh, sorry, uh, decision may come back to haunt them politically. That Kansas vote is very telling. Uh, Republican candidates around the country are running away from their kind of most extreme positions on abortion. Uh, and uh, the fact that women are apparently enrolling to vote in enormous numbers now uh, suggests, now that's, there's, there's no panacea here, that's not gonna change everything. Uh, but what I'm saying is it's that kind of mobilization, democratic mobilization, um, which is really, uh, uh, really the only hope uh, to, uh, to rein in uh, the power of the, the court and to perhaps even eliminate from it the power of judicial review, which some people have a call for, um, which uh, was established very on, early on in the life of the court. One last question for you, Steve. We have been speaking with historian, writer, editor Steve Frazier. He re has returned to This Is Held to discuss his new Tom Dispatch article, The Trump Supreme Court is Nothing New, A History of the Tyranny of the Supremes. As always, Steve, our final question is the question from hell, the question 
We may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. I've <laughs> asked this one in the past to many historians or economists. It always annoys them. You write from the beginning the Supreme Court was conceived as a bulwark against excessive democracy, as indeed was the Constitution itself. So, Steve, are those on the right, are reactionaries, conservatives, correct, when they say the United States is not and was never intended to be a democracy? Well, that's a tough question to answer. They're right in some ways. Uh, the, 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 the kind of anxiety and concerns that the founding fathers had about excessive democracy were real. They knew what a threat it could become to, a, to entrenched interests. So in a certain way, they're not, but they're right. Uh, obviously, in, in other respects, they're, they're wrong. Uh, this, the suffrage was opened eventually to everybody. That's, uh, that's a remarkable achievement in, in, in 18th century uh, life in, in Europe um, and the United States. Um, the, the progressive expansion of basic formal civil and political rights to wider and wider sections of the population suggests that there is a kind of democratic impulse uh, you know, uh, so that it's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's a dilemma. It's a, it's a, it's a confrontation. It's a confrontation between democracy and property. Um, and, uh, if the right conservatives certainly argue that, uh, and they argue this in part because they say most people are not fit to rule. This is another version of the kind of racial, racializing, so to speak, that there's a kind of inferior mass that isn't qualified to rule, and that the best results come when elites are allowed to rule. Now, there was, I, I don't know how much time you got, but there was a Supreme Court justice, very famous one, Oliver Wendell Holmes, who objected to the Lochner. He was on the court. He objected to its decision. And he said, you know, the court was not set up to inscribe in law social Darwinism. That's not a, a quote, but it's what he meant. Um, and, and, and he said, you know, he, that we're a democracy, that there isn't elite, an elite that is fittest to rule and that laws that, is, that protect the fit and don't worry about the unfit are good because they make the society uh, and rise to its surface the most the fit, best equipped to run society. Conservatives believe that um, and uh, have, you know, always believed that. Andrew Carnegie believed that. Um, he, he felt he was, he was a steward of his wealth, and he would decide what best to do with it because the people were unfit, unqualified to make those kinds of decisions. That's a strain in conservative thinking. Uh, so there's a conflict, uh, there's a confrontation. There is now, Bernie Sanders refers to it again and again. Um, and um, uh, so the outcome, I don't know. <laughs> well, on that happy note, Steve, it's always a pleasure having you on the show again. Steve Frazier has written a new piece at Tom Dispatch. The Trump court is nothing new. Make certain that you check out our interviews with Steve from the being on the show in the past. Just go to thisishell.com and search on his last name, Frazier. We've had him on in the past to discuss his books, Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion, and The Limousine Liberal, How an Incendiary Image United the Right and uh, Fractured America. And also check out his most recent book, Mongrel Firebugs and Men of Property, Capitalism and Class Conflict in American uh, History. Thank you so much for being back on the sh uh, show, Steve. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always really appreciate your historical perspective and the context that you offer the show. Thank you so much. Thank for you being very here. much. It's a pleasure to be on. All right. Take care, Steve. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>